Well, this morning we come to Psalm 35 in our series going through the Psalms. As I mentioned last week, I'm kind of focusing here for a few weeks on Psalms that help us overcome the barriers that would prevent us from pursuing our heart's desire. And hopefully our heart's desire is the same as that of David back in Psalm 27. The one thing that he asked of the Lord, the one thing that he would seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. And last week we looked at the, the first barrier, maybe the fundamental barrier to that pursuit, which is our own sin, and how in that we can be <clears throat> our own worst enemy. But there are external enemies as well. Psalm 35 is one of the psalms that addresses and deals with those enemies. They can be a barrier. They can be a distraction from our pursuit of the Lord. And so we'll look at Psalm 35 this morning. It's quite a long psalm. Let me read it for us. Again, with a reminder that this is God's very own living word. Psalm 35 of David. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it, to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. And let not those wink the eye and hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace. But against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, Aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord. Be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and arouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God, and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. 
Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our heart's desire. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Again, so ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. May he teach us from it this morning as he writes it upon our hearts. Let me pray for us as we come before the word. Our God and Father, again, we ask your blessing. Now as we come before your word, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would fulfill your very own promise, that your word goes out and does not return to you empty but instead accomplishes what you purpose for it and is successful in the things for which you send it. For us here this morning, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us to open our eyes to see, to open our ears to hear the things that you would have for us this morning. In so doing, making your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We ask all of this, as always, in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, one of my favorite stories, right there at the tip top of my favorite books to read when I was growing up, and it's still one of my favorite stories. I reread it every few years, The Count of Monte Cristo. I love that story. If you don't know, it's the story of a a young sailor. He's got a, a young lady in town that he's enamored with, and his rivals wrongly accuse him, and he's sent to prison at the notorious jail, the Chateau d'If. Think of it as Alcatraz, except in the Bay of Marseille. It's still there to this day. There he meets and is educated by an old monk named the Abbe Faria, who teaches him languages and teaches him knowledge and science and all sorts of things. And before he dies, the Abbe reveals to this young Edmond Dantes, that he has a fortune hidden away on a small island, Monte Cristo. Edmond escapes and uses the immense fortune that he finds to accomplish revenge. Justice, from his point of view, against those enemies who falsely accused him so many, many, many years ago. I first read it when I was a teenager in junior high school. I loved the adventure, but I also loved the idea of wrongs being righted, of a man pursuing justice for things that had been done wrong to him. And he had the wealth, and he had the power, and he had the cleverness to pull it all off. And I thought, wow, I'd I'd like to be like that guy. (laughs) Well, that's not such a good goal as I've grown and matured, I hope, in in my faith. But this idea of revenge and exacting revenge is an idea that's prevalent in in a whole variety of cultures, probably around the world. We have honor killings that we see taking place and read about in the Middle East. Look at the mafia or the gang wars. You kill one of mine, I'm going to kill one of yours. We'll kill you back. Go back to dueling in Europe or the 
battles of knights in the medieval era, or the revenge that we see in many a Western movie. It's a theme that we love, and we go back to again and again and again. We love the idea of getting revenge, especially when we think that revenge accomplishes justice. And we think we're just and right in pursuing and accomplishing that revenge. But like I said, as as we look at Scripture, that's contrary to what we're taught by our God and by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're told very explicitly, vengeance is not yours. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 32 and Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never. Not when I think it's just. Not when I think it's right. Not when... No. Never. That's a, that's a very <laughs> specific word. There's no fuzz on that peach. Never avenge yourself. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's in Hebrews 10, verse 30 as well. So it's not our job to avenge ourselves. We're to leave justice to God. And, and think about that's not an impersonal God out there floating around. This is our God. This is the covenant God, the God who loves us with a rich and deep love who cares about us, who knows our trials, who has shared our trials in the person of Jesus. He knows our needs. He knows our enemies. And he's promised to deal with them for us. So what does that leave for us to do? What do we do with our enemies? Romans tells us to feed them, give them something to drink when they're thirsty. Jesus in Luke 6, in a passage that we frequently read for our confession as we open the service. Jesus tells us to love our enemies, to do good to those who hate us, to bless those who curse us, and to pray for those who abuse us. And to me what's remarkable, although it shouldn't be because it's God's word and it's consistent, is those things that Jesus is talking about in Luke 6 are precisely what David is doing in Psalm 35. He prays for them. He prays for those who hate them. We'll look at that in a little more detail later. But he also prays about them, that God would punish them. These enemies that afflict us, like our own sin, often stand in our way from that goal that we talked about earlier this year, that goal that we should all have to pursue God with all of our heart, to worship Him, to dwell with Him, to see His beauty in all things, and to come to know Him deeply and and intimately. We have here in this example of divine soul music, David pouring out his heart to God to do what God has promised to do. Execute justice. Repay my enemies for their sins against me. And that's a psalm and a cry of our heart for us as well. When enemies arise, deal with them, God. You promised to, so that I might praise you. This is a psalm I want to look at the themes of, rather than the outline or structure of, 
there are themes here. Again, I'm, I'm indebted to, um, to Calvin's analysis of this psalm because I think he nails it right on the head. How is it that David goes about making his request? There are four things that are going on, and I think all of these are critically important. David does maintain his own innocence before God and in regard to how he's treated his enemies. That's the first thing. The second thing is that he asks God to be delivered from his enemies, from the harm that they are causing him. So there's deliverance that needs to happen. He also asks God, quite frankly and openly, to punish his enemies. That's the third theme. And the fourth and final one is that he promises to thank God and to praise him for the deliverance that he's going to provide. I want to look at those themes and look at some lessons along the way and then close out with some other lessons that we can learn from the psalm. So this theme, this first theme of innocence, young Edmund Dante's in the Count of Monte Cristo is innocent. David also is innocent. But unlike young Edmund, or older Edmund, who ends up plotting against his enemies, David has done something very different. He's done good to his enemies. Here are some of the examples of David's innocence in the psalm. Look at verse 7. He says his enemies had dug a pit for him, they had set out a net for him, and they had done it without cause. They've done this without cause. I am innocent. In verse 19, he says that the things they have done to him are wrong. They rejoice over me, and they are wrongfully my foes. They have no cause to be my foes. In verse 20, David implies that he is one of those who seeks peace in contrast to those enemies who do not seek peace. They're against those who are quiet in the land like David. Verse 27, David goes so far as to claim that he is righteous. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad. That should be a contrast to his enemies who seek to cause him harm. Note here that David is is righteous before men. This is that righteousness we often see talked about in Scripture where an individual is following God's law and doing what is right uh, before men. There's no reason that he should be persecuted or wronged. So David is innocent. He's done no harm to these enemies. He's righteous before God and man in a legal sense. But there's more. If you go back to verse 12, David has done good to his enemies. They repay me evil for good. I've done good things for them, and what do they do? Evil. My soul is bereft as a result. He's actively done good things for his enemies. And then he goes on in 13 to 14 to give an example. When they were sick, what did I do? I wore sackcloth. We know what that is in the Old Testament. It's a sign of mourning. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I prayed for these people in mourning, in symbols of sorrow, in fasting. I prayed that they would recover. I sought out the good for them. I walked about as someone who's grieving for his own father or friend or brother or or mother. 
bowed down in mourning. I treated them like my own family member when they were in trouble, when they were sick. So there's our first little challenge, our first little lesson. Is that how you treat your enemies? Number one, are you innocent? You know, we have to be careful that we're not doing things that would cause others to persecute us. Peter warns against that in chapter 4 of his first letter. Don't suffer for committing sin, doing evil. But he goes on to say, starting in verse 14, If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So the first thing is, if you're going to deal with your enemies, make sure you're innocent. If you're not, there's, there's kind of an implied sense in Scripture that you kind of deserve it. It's your own sin. But if you suffer as a Christian, rejoice. Being innocent is a difficult enough hurdle for us to clear. We claim, or we complain about opposition, we complain about persecution. Too often we're the ones who contribute to our own situation, to our own hypocrisy or foolishness, or our own sin becoming our, making us our own worst enemy. But there are times, and I think those times are, are fairly frequent and often, when we are innocent, when our enemies have no cause against us, and yet they persecute us anyway. We wonder where God is and what he's going to do and when he's going to do something about our enemies. And so we're tempted to pray these imprecatory psalms. Some of you have seen the Luther quote generator on the internet. The Luther insult generator. It's funny, as I'll get out. But it's not the attitude of Psalm 35. Our job is not to call our opponents names. But we're tempted to do that. David does something completely different. He prays for his enemies. He goes about in mourning for them. In great grief and sorrow, have we behaved like David to our enemies? Have we prayed for their good? Indeed, have we blessed those who've cursed us, prayed for those who abuse us, done good to those who hate us? Praying with sympathy, with mourning, with sorrow in our hearts. Think of some of the problems we have in society, just in a general sense, the enemies that we have or we make for ourselves. There, there are two things, I think, that divide us most in our, in our society today. Politics and race. Two of the stupidest things that I can think of. And yet we hate each other. Politics has become so divided, so vitriolic, so full of hatred, spewing of evil and wicked words toward one another. But what if that senator, what if that governor, what if, what if the president is of a different political party than you? How do you pray for that person? Do you pray that they'd be healthy? That they'd be well? That God would take care of them and protect them? That God would give them wisdom to rule rightly? 
Do we pray for their good? Do we mourn when they're in sorrow? We don't. Christians oftentimes are among those who lash out the most on both sides of the aisle. Race is still a problem. We cannot seem to come together. We think ill of others rather than praying for them. How can we be an example? I think by doing just what David does, praying for those people, praying for their health and their protection, their safety, for their well-being, praying for reconciliation among those who are divided, whether race or affluence or whatever the cause might be, for peace and understanding to prevail rather than the discord that seems to rise up so often around us. That's what David's praying for. That's our example. So before we ask God to take vengeance, we've got to look at ourselves first. Make sure that we're innocent, but make sure we're following our Lord's commands to treat our enemies well. Praying for their best. Isn't that what Jesus is saying on the cross? Asking God to forgive those who are killing him? Or Stephen when he was martyred? More poignantly, isn't that what God has done for us? Romans 5.10, Paul says, We were enemies of God before Christ came and saved us. Rebelling against him in our sin, hating him, enmity between us and God. The offended party sent his own son to make things right so that through repentance and faith we might be saved. So that he could treat us as his his own sons and daughters instead of his enemies. Think of Paul on the road to Damascus. What does Jesus say to Paul? Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? No, that's not what he says. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's very personal. God identifies with us through the Son. And if he's done that for us, when we were his enemies, how can we not do it to others? We're basically insulting God when we refuse to do as he's done for us. All right, so David is innocent. He's being attacked by his enemies. What does he ask God for? First, he asks for deliverance. In verse 1, that God would contend with those who fight against him. Fight against my enemies, Lord. You do it. You take the vengeance. Rise up, in verse 2, for my help. Verse 3, draw spear and javelin. Be my salvation. Verse 17, he has to be rescued from their destruction. 22, don't be far from me. 23, awake and arouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause. Continuing in 24, to vindicate me according to your righteousness. 24 and 25, he gets a little more specific. Don't let my enemies win. Don't let them get their heart's desire. Don't let them rejoice over me. Instead, in 27, let others around me see your salvation, your deliverance, and shout for joy and be glad. Here in all these examples from this psalm, David is asking God to take vengeance. 
leaving it to him as instructed, even in Deuteronomy 32. David needs deliverance from his enemies, but he also knows that his enemies have violated God's law. They have done what is evil. And so he asks God to punish those enemies. In effect, he's appealing to God's justice, for God to uphold his own righteousness, for God to uphold his own law. Look, for example, at verse 28. My tongue shall tell of your righteousness. God is doing what is right and good in punishing evil. So he asked them, asked God in verse 4, to let them be put to shame, let them be dishonored, let them be turned back, let them be disappointed. In verse 4, to let them be like chaff before the wind. Chaff is, the, is not the grain. It's, they'd throw up the grain in the air, the heavy stuff would fall down, the wind would blow away the, the stalks that were dry and that they didn't need. Let them be like that chaff. Let the angel of the Lord himself drive them away. Let their way be dark and slippery, the angel of the Lord pursuing them. Which is kind of a comic image if you think about it. It's dark, it's slippery, the angel of the Lord is chasing them, and they're slipping and sliding all over the place, they don't know where to go. Sometimes you have to turn your enemies into comic relief. Just, sometimes you've got to laugh. Let their way be dark and slippery in verse 6. So here we have in verses 5 and 6, God himself very active in judgment. That's what... David wants. You do it. You pursue them. Send your angel to accomplish this task. Verse 8, let their destruction come upon them unawares. They dug a pit. They set out a net. Let them be caught in it. Let them be destroyed instead of me. All the way to verse 26, let them be put to shame. Let them be disappointed. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor. Punish them, Lord, according to your righteousness, according to your holy law. And if you do this, Lord, I will praise you. And others will as well. So in verse 9, my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. Verse 10, O Lord, who is like you, who delivers the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from those who rob him, Verse 18, he promises to thank God in the great congregation, in the mighty throng I will praise you. Think of the people of Israel coming on one of those three feasts every year, surrounding Jerusalem, and David promises before everybody, the whole nation, to declare his praise. I think it's great here that we bring our praises to our prayer time, to thank God for the things that he's done for us. It's entirely appropriate to do. Verse 28, my tongue, or verse 27 first, praise from others will come, praise from me too. The praise will be that the Lord is great. The Lord is great who delights in the welfare of his servant. And in 28, my tongue will tell of your righteousness, of your praise all the day long. So here we have a psalm that, again, builds to worship. Psalm 32 builds to worship as the goal. Psalm 27 had as its primary goal in verse 4 to worship God. Those images that David brings up in 27 verse 4 of dwelling with God, of seeing his beauty, and of studying him, of inquiring after God, 
are all descriptions of worship. And it's daily worship. It's constant worship. It's a life of worship. Again, David is promising this to the Lord his God. Let me see you. Let me see your acts. Let me give you praise. Another little lesson there. We ask for all sorts of things from God. And we typically, I think, more than we should, ask for them for kind of a material earthly benefit. You know, a good job. And a good job is a good thing to have. Health. Health is a good thing to have. So I can be healthy. So I can be productive in my work. Give me a wife. Give me a husband. Give me children. These are all good things to pray for. But we often don't think. Too often, you know, we're like those, those ten lepers. They're all healed, but only one comes back and gives thanks. We should be giving thanks all the time. That's David's attitude, to praise God every day of his life. Praise him for the job, praise him for the family, praise him for deliverance from his enemies. Praise him for every prayer that God has answered. So some thoughts here to to conclude as well. Why do we ask God to save us from our enemies, to take vengeance on us? Well, one, again, this relates to what I just said, so that God gets the glory. Think again about the story of Edmond Dantes in in the Count of Monte Cristo. Who's the hero? It's not God. (laughs) It's, It's the Count who exacts his vengeance on his foes, who saves poor and needy people and raises them up and rescues the girl and lives happily ever after. The crafty, wise executioner of justice. The story ends, he's firmly convinced that everything he's done is justified and right before God. Again, that's a a story that appeals to our desire to be heroes, to our desire to be the Savior, to to our desire to be the one who sets things right, and to get the recognition and acclaim and the glory for doing it. But that's not what God has called us to do. He's called us to be his suffering servants. We're no better than our master, the suffering servant, who humbled himself, became a man, and was obedient to God the Father, even to the point of death on a cross, for us and for our salvation. And so we rejoice when suffering comes, First Peter 4 again, when we have the privilege to suffer for being Christians. Because in that suffering we're identified as Christians, as those who have repented and believed in Christ. If we suffer, and if, the God, if God is the one who takes vengeance on our behalf, then who gets the glory? He does. And that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it should be. He gets the glory in and through us, the things he does for us. So we ask God to take vengeance so that he gets the glory. And if God gets the glory, then he gets the praise and worship. So we're back to worship again. I referred to uh, Philippians 2 a little bit ago. That passage goes on and says that Jesus came and suffered and was obedient to the point of death for our salvation. And as a result, God has honored him and given him a name above every name. 
and that there is a time coming when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess. This is worship that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Again, for God's glory. Going back to that theme for the year, wanting to see God, wanting to see His beauty, wanting to study and know Him. One way we can do this is to let Him take vengeance on our enemies. In fact, ask Him to do so. See Him work on your behalf, on behalf of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And as you see that, you'll see more and more deeply of God's beauty. You'll come to know Him better. What kind of God He is. What kind of God does this for His people. And your worship for Him will be strengthened and increase. If you don't have this as your heart's desire, you should. Because again, there's a time coming. And may it come soon. When every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some are going to do that with great joy, great happiness. I, for one, am looking forward to that day. I'm thinking with uh, John in Revelation, Maranatha, may it come quickly. The sooner the better. But some will confess that with great sorrow, with great sadness and with great fear because they will finally see and they will see too late who Jesus is. And that they're about to taste his vengeance for all of eternity. You either get relief from vengeance now, or you get to experience for all of eternity. God can save now. Deliver everyone who comes to him in repentance and faith from his own vengeance for sin. You can have that, or you can experience his vengeance forever and ever. Be wise. Choose the former. David can pray against his enemies because they deserve God's punishment. They do. They've done him wrong. But every sinner on the face of this earth deserves God's punishment, his vengeance for their rebellion against him. Like we talked about last week, you're your own worst enemy when it comes to sin. Do yourself a favor. Ask God to deliver you from his own vengeance. And he will. Like we saw back in Psalm 32. Confess your sins. And he will forgive the iniquity of his sin. No waiting, no delay. It's that simple. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would, first of all, help us to walk according to your word by the power of your spirit so that if we suffer, we suffer as Christians, not as evildoers, not as meddlers, not as liars or thieves, not as hypocrites, not as holier-than-thou religious people, Help us to walk as your people so that when we suffer, it is for that one reason, that we are your people in Christ, that we are innocent. And from that, 
We do ask deliverance from our enemies. Those enemies are greater in certain parts of the world than in others. So we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world in the Middle East, Turkey and India, Afghanistan, China, and other places in Africa and South America as well, where our brothers and sisters face real peril just for naming the name of Christ. Imprisonment, like Pastor Saeed, for whose release we give you great thanks. Be with his family and watch over them and bless them. But for the many, many hundreds and thousands of others, may you give them peace and comfort and strength as they face their enemies. Deliver them from that evil. And we do ask that you would punish those enemies that you would act, and that you would do so for your own glory. They may escape punishment for a time in this world, but we do know that there is eternal punishment coming for those who refuse here and now to repent and believe in Christ. Be gracious, be merciful. Our heart's desire is that you would come, that you would send your Son Jesus quickly, but for the sake of the lost, we would ask that you would delay so that many and many, many more might come to repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. Through all of this, show your glory, show your majesty, show your love, show your mercy, show your kindness and your patience and your wisdom and your glory. Father, we ask it all in and through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.